Well, it's good to be here. I'm sure everybody stayed up late and watched the uh, State of the Union, and you were all invigorated and want to talk about how we go forward, right? <laughs> he started out a speech last night, and he said it was turn the page. And all I could think of was Bob Seger and the song, and I was wishing Bob Seger would <laughs> The song's a bit melancholy, but at least you're moving forward, looking back and moving forward. But I think we're really turning the page backwards, really, in listening to what he talked about. Some of the stuff, frankly, was just difficult to even listen to and, and keep a straight face. The biggest whopper of all of them, and I think the one that takes the most chutzpah, the most gall, is for him to say, we have been reduced, we've cut the deficit more than any other president. Well, if you quadruple it to begin with, you can lessen the deficit, but that's the annual problem. But it ignores completely what we're in the midst of. He, will, he is on course to add more to the debt than all 43 previous presidents combined. And he has the gall to brag about reducing the deficit. It's just amazing. The man has, I mean, has no limits as to the gall. The other thing is, is that, and this is, a, I guess, what amazes me most about him, is that he will say a lot of things that I could agree with. A lot of violence work together, bipartisan. But the problem is the lack of sincerity. On almost everything he said that there's possible bipartisan support for, he hasn't really helped to try to push the ball forward. A good example is the NSA. A vast majority of the country think that our phone records should only be gathered by a warrant. A warrant specific to your name, a warrant that says we have probable cause that we suspect you of a crime. But we don't think that really you should gather everyone's records all the time with a generalized warrant. His own privacy commission said as much, and he will say he agrees with it, and, he, and then he'll come back and say, well, Congress must act. Well, it, it would be the only thing he's ever waited on us to act. Everything else that he wants, he's simply done on his own. In fact, the spying program, the bulk collection of phone records, is done by executive order. We didn't approve it. It's an, an extension maybe of the Patriot Act. But many authors of the Patriot Act, uh, Congressman Sensenbrenner was one of the authors of the Patriot Act, and he says, we never intended to have that kind of mass bulk surveillance of the American public. And yet it's going on, and the president could end it at any moment through executive order. It's done by executive order, but that one, he's very passive on changing, who will tell you to your face that absolutely he'll say all the right things about privacy, balancing privacy and security, but he hasn't done anything. The program continues on. He says to Congress, do it. Well, with regard to other things, immigration, health care, you name it, he's got a pen and a phone, and by golly, he'll do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, because he's frustrated. And the thing is, is that some people have given him a pass on this and said, well, yeah, he's frustrated because Congress won't do anything. It's like, this is our system of government. It means he is frustrated by a constitutional republic that has checks and balances, three branches of government, and frankly, it is difficult to get things passed. But you know, one way you could help to get things passed is he should come to the Hill. He should talk to legislators who work with him. You know, for all the fire, I will work with him. I have called and offered to work with him. I called him three months ago and I said, look, you want to build infrastructure in our country? So do I. I've got a great opportunity and it's something you've supported in the past. There's $2 trillion overseas in American profit. Let's try to bring it home and put it in the highway fund. Interestingly, you can bring it home by lowering the tax rate. 
it's about 35% my, give or take what you pay overseas to bring your money home. So many people are paying well in the 20s, 20% for effective rate, and as a consequence, nobody's bringing any money home. In fact, countries, companies are actually inverting and reincorporating overseas. Two trillion dollars. Well, in 2005, there was about 600 billion overseas, and we did pass a holiday. We lowered the tax for a year at 5%. 300 billion dollars came home. That's a pretty good-sized stimulus. There's twice as much money overseas right now. I can imagine a stimulus almost the same as the government stimulus. The only difference would be this would be a real stimulus because this would be real companies who are successful bringing their money home and creating more jobs. Remember how when we had the $800 billion government stimulus, Republicans complaint was, well, you shouldn't pick winners and losers and who knows who should get the money. And this is true. If I have $800 billion and I want to pass it out, if I randomly select people and give them the money, I don't know whether they're good in business. But if, a, if you return the money in the form of a tax cut, you're giving it to people who the community has already voted upon. If you're successful in business, you're selling something voluntarily to people and they're buying your stuff. That's why you're a successful company. So a stimulus where the money goes back to those who produce it, those who have jobs, is 10 times, 100 times more effective than a government just passing it out. Plus, when a government passes it out, there are consequences because they have to borrow the money to pass it out. This is a stimulus where there's no borrowed money, you reduce the tax rate, and we can put the tax proceeds into infrastructure for our country. This is sort of a win-win-win situation. You lower a tax, get more revenue, stimulate the economy, and build highways. How could anybody be against that? So I called the president a few months ago and I said, you voted for this. He voted exactly for this in 2005. It's like, help me, we'll get something done. I hear you talking about bridges. I, I went with him one time to Cincinnati. We have an old bridge between Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky. I said, we'll help you build it. We'll get the money for it. And he's like, well, I'm not so sure it, it really creates jobs to do that anymore. But this is the, the problem. And there's a, there's a congressman in the in the House who studied this thing for years and years to try to prove that bringing money home created no jobs. I frankly think even the concept of studying the issue is a stupid issue. <laughs> Here's the thing, if I have, if, if there's, let's say there's $300 million overseas and it comes home and is repatriated and somehow $1 is given to every person in the country, so 300 million people got $1, it's going to be hard to measure the jobs created. But anybody want to stand up here and make an argument that would be a bad thing? How could anybody make the argument that it would be a bad thing for American profit to come home? So on the one hand, they kind of understand this. He talked last night about jobs going overseas, but you know this would be a way for money and jobs to come back home. This is a lot of money, $2 trillion. The longer it stays, the more likely it is to buy stuff over there and create jobs over there. Well, I am a big believer in trade, but we live in a world economy at the same time, I'd like to see some of that money flow home with encouragement. Now, what he talked about last night is he just closed loopholes, meaning he's just going to tax it, mandatorily tax it. That's a huge mistake and uh, won't be good for the economy. The one thing I think he fundamentally doesn't get is that there, there are definitely are two, two places money can be, one in the private sector and one in the government sector. And I, I tell people that you want to minimize the government sector because they're just not very good at stuff. It doesn't mean we don't have government, but think about the stuff government does. Amtrak, the post office, all right? 
Do you want people who cannot run a post office, do you want them to run all the rest of our lives, health care, you name it? That's why it's a mistake. There are certain things government has to do. We have to have a national defense. You really can't have a, you know, Alexandria defense or Houston defense. We have to have a national defense. So things government has to do, but we should minimize the other stuff it gets involved with. The president doesn't quite understand that, and so last night we, we were heard we'll have you know, we're going to have free school. We're going to have free community college. And I was joking to somebody, and I said, well, I guess, you know, because he kept saying we're going to have middle class economics. I said, well, I guess they're going to teach middle class economics at the free community college. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the problem. It is very easy to be for free stuff. But there are consequences to being for free stuff. Nothing's really free. You either tax people or you borrow, or you print up the money to pay for things. There are consequences to all of these. There are economists now who say that we're losing a million jobs a year because of the burden of an $18 trillion debt. There are some of us who worry beyond that, could we have another crisis? Panic is, is an irrational thing. But it's when people are frightened. I tell them it's, it's like when instead of one plus one is two, one plus one is a million. It, it's where things become irrational. I remember in 2008, I'm sitting in my small doctor's office in a small town in the center of our country, and I converted all of my retirement savings to money market, and now I was contemplating dividing money market into different money markets to make sure they were insured. That's the definition of a panic, when you're really worried that you're going to lose your life savings. In 1923, that's what happened in Germany. Everybody lost everything like this. And in fact, my grandparents, when they came here, were still very wary. They thought the most important thing if you saved up money was to put it into land because like, the land wouldn't disappear overnight. Is 1923 going to happen? Am I an alarmist? Probably not, but think about it. We just have, you know, the Federal Reserve now has $4 trillion worth of assets, and people say, well, assets are good, right? Well, the assets are just our debt. You know, we talked about gold. Once a time, once upon a time, your, your currency was backed by gold. Then for many years, your currency was backed by the full faith and credit of government. And if government's doing well, and there's a lot of faith in government, maybe that's not so bad. But in the last downturn, all the stuff that nobody would buy, the government bought. The Federal Reserve holds it against the dollar. So you know what kind of standard we're on now? We're on the bad used car loan standard. <laughs> the Federal Reserve owns bad used car loans. They own bad home loans. They bought all the worst stuff. They own derivatives that no one in their right mind would buy, and there's still no marketplace. Now, you can argue that the catastrophe could have been worse if no one is the backstop, and that is a, a deeper debate to have. But the thing is, it, none of this should be that encouraging to us. But why do we have that? because we spend money we don't have. Why? Because it's easier to be Santa Claus than to say, I'm going to offer you opportunity. People say, I'll offer you a cell phone. If one cell phone's enough, I'll offer you two cell phones. I'll offer you free community college. It's like, I'm waiting for free cars. I could use a new car, and you know, if everybody would get a free car, why don't, just think how much, how great it would be. I know Mark's liking this, right? <laughs> Let's give everybody a free car. But you know, the thing is, is, is no one willing to think a little bit deeper? But there are things we could work with him. I'll work with him on infrastructure. And it's a way that works for everybody. Republicans love to lower a tax rate. It brings in more revenue. It did in 2005. Democrat economists have said it will bring in more revenue. This is an easy one. 
There are other issues. When I talked to him a few months ago about infrastructure, I also talked to him about criminal justice. And he, I will compliment him. He did something good this week. They've ended this, um, I hope they have, they've at least indicated they're going to end this uh, civil forfeiture. This, to my mind, is one of the worst things going on in the country. They can take your money, a lot of times the local police force, and they're given incentive because they get the money if they take it from you. But here's the rub. You are guilty until proven innocent. If you have, let's say I'm driving, and this is a true story, I'm driving, I'm, I'm in Boston, I'm 21 years old, my dad gives me money, 2,000 bucks, and I'm driving to California for, to make my dream. Somewhere in the desert of Nevada, a kid gets stopped with $2,000. Actually, I think by the time I got to Nevada, it was only 1,900 left, 1,800 left. So he's got 1,800 bucks and it's in cash. The, the police find it and they just take it. They say this could be drug money. Well, it wasn't drug money, but you've got to prove to the police now you're guilty until you're proved innocent. And guess what? They don't have to charge you of any kind of crime. They don't have to find any drugs in the car. They don't have to charge you of anything. They just keep the money until you sue them, you know, sue them to get your money back. Anybody here believe you can get an attorney and get your 1800 bucks back and have any money left over? No. <laughs> so small stuff, it just adds up. And so it's collective and collective. People have an incentive. There have been instances of local police forces actually investigating property, looking at the bank deed to see if it's debt free because they can't take it if it's got a lien against it. So they're looking for people who have a paid off car. They look for a car they like. They look for a house they like. You think I'm kidding? About three months ago in Philadelphia, a teenager was selling $40, caught selling $40 worth of illegal drugs and he was caught in his house. His parents had a nice house, probably a $250,000 house. You know what happened? For $40 worth of drugs, the police took the house. They barricaded the house and evicted the family. Now that was an extraordinary instance because it was an upper middle class family. But you know who usually is the, is the, gets the burden of this? It's an inner city family where it's grandma who's the stabilizing force in a family and grandkids selling marijuana. Grandma is the stabilizing force in this family. The main thing they have is that house, they take the house. You can have a pizza hut where the business owner has an employee selling marijuana out of the back, they can confiscate a pizza hut. This is going on all across America. It's an injustice. So the thing is, is why do I bring this up? Why is this a big deal? You saw all the protests across America. The protests were sort of, they began over specific instances of, uh, you know, the Michael Brown case, the Eric Garner case, where people were angry about that. But they're not just angry about that. They're angry about more than that. I tell people that there's an undercurrent of unease in our country. In 1967, Martin Luther King spoke at Stanford and he talked about two Americas. One America where everybody's seeing opportunity, they know the American dream, they believe in the American dream, and the other America, they just don't believe in the American dream. And for some reason, there's this perception, and some of it is based on fact, that they're being persecuted and they're just shoved aside. <clears throat> Charles Murray wrote a book called Coming Apart at the Seams. And in that, he looked at income statistics only for one race, for the white race, and he showed the difference because he wanted to eliminate race from, a, from the, the, the judgment of what was the problem. And he showed the difference between sort of those who have college and have their kids after they're married and those who have no college education and have kids before they're married. And it's two worlds. One world lives in abject poverty and has no chance. That's the other America. They're not, they don't have a chance. But we need to understand that it's more than just about what's going on in Ferguson or the one occurrence. It is about an undercurrent of unease that feels like the criminal justice system is not treating people fairly.
It is important to note, though, that I don't think it is racially motivated. Many of our cities actually have African-American chiefs of police. There are many African-American police officers. I know many good police officers who are African-American. They aren't arresting black people with a racial bias. However, if you look at the statistics, the people in jail are black and brown. Why? It's not, it's not done on purpose, but they go to where there's a congregation of people and there's more crimes. That's in the cities, and as the, the way demographics work, there are more African-Americans and Hispanics and more crowded together, and so it's easier for the police to go there. They don't go to the suburbs. So it isn't that they've targeted people, but over and over, if you go to the same neighborhood and you're patrolling the same neighborhoods, the people you tend to arrest will look like the people who live in the neighborhood. So when you look at nonviolent crime primarily, if you look at people in jail for, for drugs, possession or sale, three out of four of them are black or brown. But if you look at a survey and you say, do white kids use drugs also? White kids are using drugs at about the same rate as black kids. White kids are four times greater in the population. So you can imagine, how did we get to having four times you know, more uh, black individuals in prison? There is a problem with our criminal justice. It is not done on purpose. It is not racially motivated. But it inadvertently has led to a racial outcome. That's why people are unhappy. Rolling Stone did an article about a month ago on this and just talked about some of the people in jail. One of them was on TV, what in Rolling Stone. Remember that 19-year-old kid who was selling pot brownies? You know what he's facing? Life imprisonment. That's insane. Why? Because they weigh the brownie, and 99% of the weight of the brownie is brownie, and 1% <laughs> is drug, but he's going to jail for the whole weight of the brownie. Because we were going to be tough on crime and tough on drugs back 20 or 30 years ago. A 31-year-old nurse uh, was an addict. She was writing prescriptions. It's wrong. She should be punished for Lortab. Lortab is 95% Tylenol and 5% hydroxycodone. She did the wrong thing, and I think she should be punished. She shouldn't be a nurse. She broke the law. But you know what her punishment was? 15 years in prison. Mm -hmm. 23 years ago, there was a, a deadhead. Anybody in here a former deadhead? <laughs> <laughs> Senator Leahy was so anyway, this guy was, uh, he was just an idiot. He was on some kind of drugs. He's running around the desert naked, building some kind of dam across some road for some unknown reason. <laughs> so anyway, should he, should he be uh, punished, made to pick up some trash, you know, get a job, all those things? Sure. He's still in jail. He's been in jail for 23 years. He was selling LSD. But it's like, come on, can't we figure out a better way to do this? So it's not only the injustice of the drug wars, then it's the racial outcome of the drug wars. But I think there's time for a change. I can stand up, and I will. I'll stand up and give this identical speech in a church. In a, in a evangelical, mostly white church, I'll tell them the same thing. The war on drugs having a racial outcome. And I think people are listening. So if the president wants to work with me, I have five or six bills. I have a bill to get rid of mandatory minimums. Mandatory minimums will often say you have 15 years to life imprisonment, and the judge has no discretion. That's absolutely wrong. We ought to get rid of them. We have a bill out there that would do that. I have one that says that if you behave yourself, particularly for nonviolent crimes, you should be able to expunge your record. You know, many Republicans are complaining, everybody's on welfare, nobody's working. Well, why don't we make it easier for people to work by letting them get rid of their record? You know, how many people in here want to hire a convicted felon? The other thing we could do is we could take some of these felonies and make them misdemeanors. Still not making it right, but give people a chance. In my state, if you are convicted of a felony, you lose your right to vote forever. 
you never get your right to vote back. I have a friend of mine whose brother grew marijuana plants, and he must have been pretty good at it because he got a felony. <laughs> he grew them in college. He still can't vote. And every time he plays an MBA, but every time he applies for a job, he's got to check a box saying he's a convicted felon. If Republicans want a bigger party, if we want to be the compassionate conservatives, we want to show compassion, let's show compassion. Let's reform our criminal justice system. I think if we do things like that, if we find innovative ways to find money for infrastructure, we try to reform criminal justice, we look at privacy, and I tell people all the time, look, we're great at defending the Second Amendment, but you can't have the Second Amendment unless you have the First Amendment. You can't have the Second Amendment unless you have the Fourth Amendment. We need to protect privacy. It was never the intention of our founding fathers, in spirit or the letter of the law, that the government would be able to collect all your records with a single warrant. I think you retain a privacy in, in, interest in your records. Some people say, oh, once you give your records to the phone company, they're the phone company's records, and you've given up all consideration of privacy when the phone has them, when the phone people have them. So, like, the, the warrant, there is a warrant they got for your phone records. That it's Mr. Verizon. Mr. Verizon got a warrant, and they took all of his, all the records, but including your records. I think when you sign up with any kind of internet provider or anything else, and you sign a privacy agreement, you're retaining ownership in your records, and that they should be treated as if they are papers in your house, and there's a digital extension to your house. This is, has to be a new interpretation of this because we didn't have the internet. We didn't have all of our records stored remotely. But you can't tell me that my visa record's not private. If I have your visa record, I can tell whether you drink, whether you smoke, and how much. I can tell whether you gamble. I can tell who your doctors are. I can tell what your medications are. Do you think everybody in the world ought to know uh, what diseases you have and what medications you take? Can you imagine the possibility for using that information to extort people? And people say, oh, no, we're not doing anything. The NSA says, the only thing we're doing wrong is we lie on occasion. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the intelligence director comes to the, comes to the Senate uh, committee and just lies, says, we're not doing this. How can we tolerate that? One of the really important things is oversight. You have civilian oversight of the military and civilian oversight of the intelligence agency. The tools are so powerful that it, it worries me to death that we have someone who will blatantly lie under oath to a committee and the president does nothing. It's another thing about the president's sincerity. He says, oh yes, he believes in privacy. He'll balance this and that and do this. He's not doing anything to change the NSA and he's leaving in place an intelligence director who basically lied to us. So there is room and there are places we can go to try to find this but we are going to have to uh, push the envelope. It isn't enough to say, well, we're going to work in a bipartisan way unless we can actually come up with proposals that we can actually work on together and actually follow through. <coughs> I will continue to try. The criminal justice system is, is a big thing. I think it's important in our country to do something about that fairness. <coughs> I think uh, our privacy is a big concern to us. I'll continue to work on that. Infrastructure. Um, whether Republican or a Democrat, I hear from everybody in my state, they want the roads to be repaired and they want us to be able to travel. So I think there are ways to do all of these from a Republican perspective, but working with the Democrats. The number one issue I have that I'm going to try to do in the next couple of months, I'm working with Barbara Boxer. We're very close to getting a bill written that will reduce the tax to bring that money home and then put the money designated for the highway fund. I think we can get 10 or 15 uh, Democrats on board. 
my biggest opposition right now is actually Republicans who don't want, they want uh, repatriation, lowering that tax to be part of overall permanent tax reform, which I'm fine, but good luck getting the president to sign it and good luck getting enough Democrats to, uh, to do a tax reform that's of any value. It's going to take forever. There are a thousand moving pieces in tax reform. I'm all for it, but it's not going to happen quickly. If we're looking forward to 2016, and some of us are, <laughs> we need to have to show that we can do something while we're in charge and something that works and move forward with it. So I say let's go ahead and pass this repatriation, see if money will come home, see if we can spur more economic gain, build more runs in the next two years, take credit for it, and whoever our nominee is can move forward with taking credit for it. And then the one thing I'd like to mention finally that I think we should do and can do is immigration reform. We can get that done. It's not going to be everything the other side wants. And we've got to get rid of the terminology. We just have to say, all right, there are ten issues in immigration reform. We don't agree on all ten. We agree on five. Let's just start passing them. The biggest thing you hear in Silicon Valley is they want people with advanced degrees to stay in the country. I'm all for it. The Republican House passed that overwhelmingly last time. Let's do it again. As soon as we can, let's just pass expansion of that. There are economic visas. There's a visa that if you have a million bucks, you can come to this country. Who wouldn't we want that has a million dollars? <laughs> There's 10,000 of them we maxed out last year. Why not double it? Why not have 20,000 of these economic visas? And then when, they, when we reach that peak, double it again. Why would we ever not want these people? But we also want people at all ends of the point. I, migrant workers, if they're not here, we're not going to have the crops picked. You know? There was one problem, though. The Senate bill, when it came forward last time, I ended up voting against it. One of the reasons was it limited the number of workers coming in. They said only 100,000 people can come in to pick crops. But everybody estimates that 400,000 people come in every year. So what is that? It's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for more illegal immigration. The biggest complaint of conservatives is we tried this in 86. We gave people the forgiveness, let them stay, but they promised us border security, and apparently we didn't have any because 11 million more people came. So you, you have to have something that is verifiable. One thing that I put forward that I think could get conservatives on board is to not just leave it up to the president. We don't trust this president very much. may not trust the next one very much, no matter what party they are, to actually secure the border. So one way to ensure that the border is secure, that your representative has a say in this, is what I would do is I would institute the reforms, but I would make them dependent on a vote every year for five years from Congress. So if in a year I've, I've looked at what the President's done and I don't believe the border is secure, I'm going to vote to slow down the program or stop temporarily the program till the border is secure. I'll do the same after year two, three, four, five. What that would do is that conservatives, like myself, who are skeptical of any executive actually doing what they're supposed to do, we would separate the power. It was what our founding fathers wanted to do initially. They wanted to separate the power between the branches so one branch would jealously hold on to their power against another branch. So I think anytime we do legislation when we suspect the president of not actually enacting it the way we wish, that we should try to divide the power and retain some of the power with Congress. But I think if we look at these issues as we move forward, there's a great deal of area for agreement. The president has to do more than basically, I think, the superficial show on television that he's for it. He needs to actually do the work, come to us, work with us, and I think there are uh, ways that we can agree 
and I look forward to uh, seeing what we can do while we're in charge. I've had a smile on my face since the election, hard to wipe off, and I hope we will do some good things. Thank you very much. Senator, do you have a few minutes for a few Q&A? Yeah, Mike Bergman, uh, you did such a great job with your intro. Would you like to uh, have the first question, or Nick? You don't have one? All right. Anybody else? Oh, Ann. Thank you. Um, Ann Gamble, and I have a question on infrastructure. There's a bill in the House and the Senate, Congressman Delaney uh, introduced it over there, Senators Blunt uh, and Bennett in the Senate, that would, it's a rather complex proposal, would take repatriated earnings and fund what would be a new government-sponsored enterprise. To the infrastructure bank. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it would kind of like out. Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Exactly. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. So my question is, this has got a lot of bipartisan support. I'm not sure it really addresses the problem, and it would put existing private sector businesses out of business. Yeah. I, but, I don't. I don't like the bank idea because, uh, you know, uh, Robert Shapiro is an economist uh, who has looked back at what we did in 2005, he says $300 billion came home and about $30 billion in taxes were paid. That's without a bank, uh, that's just, actually was put in the general fund then. What I would like to do different is just put it into the highway fund, but I don't want to pyramid it. I mean, we do pyramid stuff in, our, in the way we do banking in our country, but the government's just not very good at it. Once you take out the profit motive and that you have to look every month at your payroll and make sure you're making a profit, once you get rid of that, you say, oh, this is going to be a government bank, they just never work. So um, $30 billion in tax revenue came out in 2005, I think twice as much as out there for the first year. So I think 60 or $70 billion come home. The highway fund is $75 billion short over five years. Um, I would do repatriation longer. I frankly would do it forever. Just leave it low forever and see how much money comes home. More will come home than has ever come home. You'll get a burst at the beginning, all the pent-up demand to come home, and then it'll tail off some. But I think even as it tails off, it'll bring in more than it's brought in in the past. I just am convinced that it will, that it will do so. One of the other bugaboos that is hurting us is the scoring system. So the people up here score them, who by the way were not elected, the people who score things score it as a loss of revenue. But they make all these crazy assumptions, and I think they're basing it against all the money coming home at 35%. And frankly, I think we're too beholden to scoring agencies around here. I'd say if you're a Republican that's cutting a tax rate, don't think too hard about what any scores are on it because a tax cut leaves more money in the economy, and I think that's what we're for. But I think the bank's a mistake. So I, I, I'm trying to keep the bank out of the proposal. The one we're working on has no bank. And it's going to be harder to get Republicans because, or anybody, frankly, who remembers Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, which we still haven't completely cleaned up yet. I know you've expressed some skepticism about projected American power places, but if you look at the map and you look at ISIL, Boko Haram, and now Yemen, it just seems like our interest is taking a big hit. Can you try to reconcile the two for us? Because I never thought I'd look back at the Cold War as a, as a time of uh, peace and prosperity. <laughs> Yeah, I think any of the hot spots you look around, and uh, I don't think there can be much argument that we haven't been engaged. So we we have been 
projecting our power quite a bit. We projected our power in Libya, and it's an absolute disaster. Um, if you can argue, is there one fact that I think the evidence is difficult to refute for the Middle East? It's that when we have toppled secular dictators, we've gotten less stability, we've gotten chaos, and we've gotten a rise of radical Islam, and I believe America to be more in danger now after the Libyan War than before the Libyan War. So, you know, as a physician, we take an oath, first do no harm. Everybody in government ought to take the same oath. You should think through the consequences of doing this. Libya is a, not just because our ambassador was killed, Libya is an absolute disaster. The country is in chaos. Jihadists swim in our embassy swimming pool. Our embassy, after our ambassador was killed, we still had an embassy in Tripoli for a few months. They fled over land. They couldn't even leave by the airport. The parliament meets on a ferry. So if that's projecting power, I'm against that. Syria. Syria is just a, a huge mess. Both sides are bad. There's two million Christians live in Syria. Ask them whether or not they want Assad to be toppled and bombed. There's a Republican senator who loves to project power everywhere. He's for bombing both sides. He's for bombing ISIS and Assad. But you ask Christians, all two million of them in Syria, um, who they'd rather have in power, Assad or ISIS? Not a, not a one of them. Ever, they've lived with Assad. He's not perfect by any means. That's an understatement. He's a, a horrible dictator and has oppressed his people and killed his people with chemical weapons. But they fear ISIS more than they fear him. During the Civil War in 2013, we and our allies indiscriminately put 600 million tons of arms into the Civil War. We said, oh, we're, we're going to give them to, we're going to project our power by giving them to the moderate rebels. There was a great uh, story the other day by a CIA analyst for the Middle East, and he said, the only thing moderate about these rebels is their ability to fight. Most of these weapons, I, I, voted, I voted against giving weapons to the Syrian rebels. And I said at the time is, the irony is, we'll be back within a year to fight against our own weapons, or Israel will. The, uh, of the 1,500 groups that are on the rebel side in Syria, not one of them will recognize Israel. So I wonder how moderate they actually are. If we were to topple Assad, see a year ago there was this other debate. The president, after the chemical weapons attack, wanted to bomb Assad. If we would have bombed Assad, I feel very certain that ISIS would now be in control of all of Syria. Do we have to do something? Yeah. We, we do have to now do something about it. I am I'm, not happy about going back into the Middle East. We have to go back in there because ISIS is now a threat to our embassy in Baghdad and to our consulate in Erbil. So I am for protecting American vital interests around the world. But I see war as the last resort, not the first. Yemen's a disaster. And it isn't that we haven't been involved. We've been involved, you know, for a year or two. We've been killing, uh, we've been knocking off leaders one by one in Yemen, working with the government. The government fell yesterday or may fall yesterday or today. So the other thing I would say is I don't think you project power from a bankruptcy court. <coughs> If we have to borrow money from China to bomb Yemen, or borrow money from China to give billions of dollars to Pakistan, it doesn't make us stronger. It makes us weaker, actually. People who say, who are big on the being involved everywhere, we gave $60 billion to Mubarak. Now, is Mubarak better than the Muslim Brotherhood? Yeah. I wouldn't topple him, but I also wouldn't necessarily give him money. He stole a third to a half of it, he and his family. They're, 
some of the richest people in the world now there. Now some were in jail when people took over. But the thing is, is that we we give money to someone like Mubarak to buy their friendship. We think we're buying the friendship of the country, but we're buying the friendship of the guy who's stealing the money. We gave Mobutu billions of dollars. We bought his friendship, but do you think anybody in Congo liked us? Do you think anybody in Egypt likes us for our foreign aid? Our foreign aid's being stolen by Mubarak. He imprisons people without trial. The other day, this is the new government, but the other day they convicted 532 people to death in five minutes. You can't even read all their names. I guess they just put a list out and say, we condemn them all to death. I, I, if we give money to governments like that, then what happens? So when they're riding into here, square, what are they riding for? I think they want some of the stuff we have, free expression, not to be imprisoned without a trial. When they're riding into here, square, Mubarak shoots over their heads with tear gas. He subdues them with tear gas and batons. When they pick up the empty canister, you know what the canister says on the side? Made in the USA. That's our foreign aid to them. So they see foreign aid as tear canisters made in the USA, I'm guessing that uh, 300,000 people or a million people in Tahrir Square don't get a warm, fuzzy feeling for America. I'm not saying don't be involved. I want to be. I want. I want to project more of who we are, but more of it through diplomacy and less of it through war. And so I, I think there are opportunities. I'm not for doing nothing. The best way to describe it is there are people in our party who want to be everywhere all the time. And there may be a few that want to be nowhere any time. I'm sort of in the middle. I say we're somewhere some of the time when we vote on it in Congress. The, the recent war against ISIS, I will vote for. But I've been blasting the hell out of them saying there needs to be a vote. There was a water bill before, before uh, Christmas. It had been five months, so I attached a war resolution. I, I said let's declare war on ISIS and be very clear what we're doing here. If we're going to war, if your son or my son's going to war, we should have a debate on it. The president shouldn't just kind of do it half-ass half, half, half and haphazardly. Let's decide we're either at war or we aren't at war. Um, but uh, I think we need to rethink who what we, we've done because I think our foreign policy sometimes it makes us more in danger. This also goes with the Republican war. This isn't as popular. The, the first, the war in Iraq was a mistake. We are less stable, places more chaotic. Iran is emboldened. You know, so many Republicans are clasping their hands about Iran, and I, I agree, it's a problem. We don't want them to have a nuclear weapon. They are on the rise in the ascendancy, but who was the bulwark? Who, what was the thing keeping them checked and balanced? The balance was Hussein in Iraq. He's gone. Now the Iranians are really probably going to end up winning the war against ISIS, and Iraq becomes sort of a, a satellite state of, of Iran. So. We have to think through what we do before we do it. It's not that we're not involved or anybody's for not being engaged internationally. It's just we have to think through the unintended consequences. And you can see I feel passionately about this. But I got going on it. But I think it's important. And I am in the minority, but I keep arguing because I want more people in our party to think about it. And there is some division. They polled this question in Iowa about a month ago. And they asked, do you believe in more intervention uh, like John McCain, or less intervention like Rand Paul. And if you do it that way, more versus less, it's almost, the Republican Party is almost evenly split. And so that's the way I look at it. I don't look at it as all or none. I look at it as more or less, and more prudence versus more, and this is a, a criticism, reckless, reckless engagement or more prudent engagement. And that's the way I would describe it. I think if that's the way it's described and voters have the chance to choose between that, I think there are going to be a lot of people 
uh, including, I get soldiers every day going to me, it's been their fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth deployment, who were saying, we volunteer, we'll do whatever you tell us, but we want you to realize, you know, my buddy lost his leg, my buddy lost his arm, that we don't just want to go into every war. You know, we also, we can't run the post office. How are we going to run countries? How are we going to create companies, countries that don't like us, that see us as infidels, and we're going to put in place Western democracy? I just don't know how we do We can't run the post office. And so national defense should be about defending us. And absolutely we do. Is there a danger? There's a danger to what happened in France will happen here. So yes, absolutely we should spend resources defending ourselves, but it doesn't mean that every war we get involved with is one of national defense nor wildness. I think I better end there. Senator, uh, <laughs> we thank you so much for your time this morning. Especially, thank you for not disappointing us. Your thoughts were provoking, and I know everyone is going to go home thinking a lot about them. And your passion and recognition for it, we'd like to give you a book from Teddy Roosevelt, A Passion to Lead, with our thanks, and we hope you'll come back. Please join me in thanking our senator.